Welcome back to another episode of You Are Just a Number podcast, a podcast regarding leadership, teamwork, process improvement, and the passion people display. Today's podcast is with Bill Whiteside, who started out selling software in his own business. Additionally, he was also very interested in history, more specifically about Churchill in World War II. He did a tremendous amount of research on this topic outside of work and decided to write a book on it. That book still is not available. Somewhere in the process, he wrote another book, which he self-published, which is called Everybody Knows a Salesman Can't Write a Book. To learn more, visit our website, which is youarejustanumber.com. That's the letters U R just a number.com. All one word. I'm Jim Zellum, your host. So let's listen to Bill's remarkable journey of passion in writing a book. Hello, everyone. Today, my guest is Bill Whiteside. He has quite an interesting career. And I think I'll let him tell you about his career. So welcome aboard, Bill. Thanks, Jim. Really nice to be here. I appreciate you uh, having me on board here. So, Bill, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit, you know, about your background, okay, and how you got to where you are today? Sure. Um, And I'll get back to this. Where I am today is I'm finally confident enough to call myself an author but I took a, a long and winding path to get here. I uh, graduated from college in 1976, didn't have a clear idea of what I wanted to do. I had a degree in business management. I lucked out with a, a marketing job at Mrs. Paul's Kitchens, which people might remember for their fish sticks and onion rings and candied sweet potatoes. At the time, it was a, a family-owned company. It was a phenomenal working environment. Um, you got involved in everything, including for a short time, the, the company owned a minor league hockey team. So I got to work in the marketing of, of uh, ice hockey games, as well as fish sticks and, and onion rings. After working there 10 years, I uh, and that was in the Philadelphia suburbs, we moved about 90 minutes west to Amish country in central Pennsylvania, took a job as director of marketing for a dairy and ice cream manufacturer in Lancaster, Pennsylvania and uh, worked four years there marketing their ice cream and milk and frozen novelties. And that was in the early days of the PC industry. It was back when DOS was the operating system. You had your program files on a floppy disk and your data on another floppy disk. And I bought a piece of software for the company. It was called uh, Demand Solutions. And we used that to forecast our sales and to plan our production. And it worked astonishingly astonishingly well in a very seasonal promotion-driven business. And the software company didn't have any sales force. They weren't doing a lot of marketing. So I contacted the owner of the software company and asked if he would be interested in hiring me to be his sales and marketing department. And he wanted no part of that. He didn't want to add to his overhead, but he said, "If you'll start, I'll, I'll let you start your own business to sell my software. It's a 100% commission. Your, your, your income's 100% relying on commission, no benefits. Um, and I was thinking, well, what could possibly go wrong? I was ready to start the next day. So to this day, my toughest and most successful sale was selling my wife on that idea, that that made sense. And uh, it was a traditional shaky start. 
a real slow first two years, but after a while, things started to go pretty well. And I ended up doing that for 30 years and was fortunate to work with some great companies, um, Under Armour, Stanley Black & Decker, Maiden Form, Linton Sprungly Chocolate, Friendly Ice Cream. Um, I'm a shameless name dropper, but there are also a lot of lesser known companies that were also great to work with. And I was doing a lot of traveling in that job. Um, our territory was the Northeast United States. So we're fortunate to have Amtrak here. I spent a lot of time on trains, a fair amount of time on planes. And I always wanted to read to keep my mind occupied. And I was interested in reading. I love to read, was always interested in history and ended up reading a lot about Winston Churchill. And like a lot of people, I was just fascinated with his life and with his career. And because I had so much time, I probably, I'm sure, I surely read a lot more about him than a lot of other people. And there was this one story that kept cropping up. It was about early in the Second World War, a couple of weeks after uh, France capitulated to the Germans, Churchill's biggest fear was that uh, Hitler was going to take over the French fleet. And he insisted, there's a lot behind this, but to make a long story short, um, he insisted that France turn their ships either over to Britain or sail them to the U.S. or sink them. And France refused to do that. So a number of French ships were in British ports. It was easy to take them over. But there was one port in Algeria, Meriz el Kabir, where the, the Royal Navy uh, attacked a French fleet sitting there. They went through a day of attempts at negotiating. The French Admiral there would not negotiate. And in about a 10 minute period, the Royal Navy fired on the, the ships of, of the, the naval officers who had been their allies two weeks before, and they killed just under 1300 French seamen in a matter of minutes. And this was so, in a way it was uncharacteristic of Churchill because he adored the French. It was one of the first times in history where there was a Francophile running, running the British government, but he was ruthless in terms of what was in the best interest of Britain. So that story really captured my imagination and I kept reading about it and digging into it. I started taking uh, research trips. I went to the Franklin Roosevelt archives in Hyde Park, New York. My ultimate journey was to the Churchill archives at, Ch at Cambridge University in the UK where I got to spend three days working with the papers of Sir Winston and several other statesmen and some admirals. And it went from this idea way in the back of my head to a fascinating interest, to an infatuation, to I finally got to the point where I realized if I didn't share that story with others and write that book, it would have bothered me forever. And you know, I, in my mind and in reality, I was still a software salesman. So I had to get over you know, a bit of the, more than a little bit of the imposter syndrome. Um, but people were just so accommodating along the way. And I was fortunate to have my own business so I could make my own hours and started doing some writing in the morning on weekends and at nights and finally just decided to write that book. And then one other bit of a detour along the way that story is really research intensive. And there was a time when I was bogged down in research, wasn't doing a lot of writing. And I'd been taking notes about my research visits to the Cambridge archives. I visited uh, a town of Compiègne in France where uh, the armist an armistice was signed at the end of the First World War. And then under very 
different circumstances, Adolf Hitler had the French sign their armistice there at that same site. And those stories seemed interesting enough where I, I turned them and about 30 other stories with some relationships into another book called Everybody Knows a Salesman Can't Write a Book. So I think that's the book that um, got us to start this conversation. So just as it took me a while to wind my career to that point, it took me almost as long to tell you that story. So thank you for your endurance. So, so basically it was due to that, but now you were still working, correct? And oh. as, as a salesperson still doing, selling that software. And I, I, I guess you were doing other jobs too, as you were doing that uh, software. Stuff. I was selling the software and I started, you know, when I started 30 plus years ago, I was a one man band. And then the toughest decision in that business, having my own business was to add a second person to the business. And I was very lucky, Keith McAlpine, the second person to work with me, who unfortunately passed away, was extremely talented. And our, our company varied in size from year to year. At our high point, we had 10 people working in the company, and we did different things. Um, the thing I liked doing the best was selling and marketing. The thing I liked doing the least and was the least talented at was training and consulting. So I had really talented people who did just that. So... I was, you know, the owner of the business. I worked with people who required absolutely no supervision. We just, we just made it work together. And also the, the software and the processes, I, I've still, the effects of the Kool-Aid have not yet worn off, but the, the processes that we help these company, our customers develop, help make them profitable. So it was a good thing in a lot of different ways, but I was a software salesman starting to do this research on the side and then doing this writing on the side. And along the way, I, I did a fair amount of writing for business. Um, I wrote articles on LinkedIn too, on various subjects and you know, did presentations every year at our customer conference and, and um, industry conferences. So you know, a fair amount of experience in sharing different stories with different people. Just out of curiosity, does that company still exist? They do. They were, um, it's, it seems like my track record is to start with family run businesses that are then acquired by uh, larger companies. Um, so just like Mrs. Paul's was acquired by Campbell Soup, uh, Demand Solutions was acquired by a company called Legility. Um, Steve Johnston, the founder of Demand Solutions, um, decided he wanted to sell the business. And we all, we all quote unquote, knew we would be fired the day he sold the business because obviously he would sell it to another software company. They weren't going to need us. And Steve being Steve, he looked out for us and the absolute perfect parent was Legility because they bought us for who we were. And they, they uh, kept, us, kept us all aboard several of my counter. It was probably 15 years ago. And I mean, I, left on my own two years ago, a couple of my counterparts from way back then are still with Legility. So um, the, the, the company's still doing well. So you're an author now, okay? But I, I, I just got a question for you. So okay. did you retire from that business or you just went over saying, look, I'm gonna be an author now and I, I, I wanna follow my dream? I finally retired from that business. Um, I did most of the writing of Everybody Knows while I was still working, but I, I 
I got I I couldn't have done justice to the book, and I certainly could not have done justice to our customers and to the software company and to the people who worked with me if I kept on doing these two things together. So it was a good time for a clean break. I was in my mid sixties, so um, you know, actual actuarially, it made sense to retire as well. So, okay. All right. so the name of your book is "Everyone Knows a Salesman Salesman Can't Write a Book." Okay, so I guess I got well. One is I want to know what the book is about, but two, why did you come up with that title? I have mixed emotions about that question because it gives a cool part of the story away, but it's been All asked right, before. Well, and I've, no, that's a great question. You asked a good question, um, and I, I've answered it before. Um, let me start with a slightly different story. Okay. For when I went to the uh, Churchill Archives, when, when you set up your visit, they ask you in advance, whose papers do you want to review? So, um, of course, I asked, I wanted to see some of Winston Churchill's papers, some of General Edward Lewis Spears, and the key player in the Royal Navy was Admiral James Somerville. So, of course, I wanted to see his papers, and they were there. And they wrote back right away and said, that's great, we'll have them all ready, with the exception of one folder of Admiral Somerville's papers. And it's restricted. It contains his personal letters to his family and his diaries. And in order to access that, you need the permission of his grandson, Christopher. So I didn't know how to approach that. And so I asked the archivist, she said, well, send him a letter. I'll review the letter for you and pass it on if, it, it seemed, if, it, if you've written it okay. So I sent her a letter, my draft of a letter. And the next day she wrote back and said, your letter is perfectly adequate. And I love that phrase. It was just such a proper phrasing. So I was thinking of calling my book perfect. The working title was perfectly adequate for the longest time, which fortunately I moved away from because that would not have been meaningful to anybody. Um, and by the way, I did get Christopher Somerville did provide me access, very graciously provided access to his um, grandfather's papers. So now getting closer to actually answering your question, along the way, I read a book about the Treaty of Versailles in the First World War. And it wasn't very relevant to this sea battle in the Second World War, but I wanted to confirm a few facts about the armistice in the forest of Compiègne. And I found a book called The King's Depart, which is about that treaty. And I thought I was going to read about five pages just to confirm a few facts. And it was such a fascinating book that I ended up reading all roughly 600 pages, which was a complete waste of my time, but it was, I'm like that. If I, if I start reading something good, I can't stop. So I wanted to learn more about the author of this compelling book, Richard M. Watt. And I looked him up. He's written two other books. Unfortunately, he passed away. Um, but I found out that he, he had been a businessman. He was first in sales, then he was a president of a flooring company in New Jersey. He was the kind of guy I used to sell my software to. So I saw some parallels there, and I was fascinated by the fact that um, he was a businessman who also was successful as an author. And um, so I, I started digging into his life, his author page on Amazon listed contact information for his daughter. She, she told me that her father's archives were at Boston University. So every archive experience was different and unique. 
Um, the most interesting thing about Boston U was that was the only archive I went to um, where you had to wear gloves, where you handled the paper. And they gave you cotton gloves, which is like you know, reading the newspaper with mittens on. It was a challenge. But they're preservation gloves. That's what they it, are. It makes, I don't know why every archive doesn't do it. I'm glad they don't. It's because the oil from you. Oh, sure, oil. sure, sure. So um, I, I read about Richard M. Watt, or he was known as Dick Watt to his friends, and it talked about how he managed to research and write a book while working full time. There were parallels in our career. We both started college as intended English majors. Neither of us took any proper English courses or did any writing in college. I wrote a software manual for software. He wrote a manual for a weapon system in the Navy. We both taught each other how to read French. We both did so by making flashcards to carry with us on the road. So when I started learning more about his story, I said, that I, I have a book. <laughs> He's done it, and I can relate his story to what I'm doing. And I found an article. He, he attended Dartmouth University, and there was a great article about his career in Dartmouth Magazine. And um, a writer friend of his closed the article by stating that um, Richard Watt, just like I didn't tell many people about my other book, he didn't tell anybody about his first book. And he quoted Richard Watt saying, everybody knows a salesman can't write a book and I wasn't going to tell anyone about it and look ridiculous. So I am very thankful, among many other things, I'm thankful to Mr. Watt for that story and for the title of my book. Very, very, very interesting. So besides this book, you have another book? I had the other one, which is, you know, quote unquote, my real book. My kids, my two kids call it my Churchill book. It's certainly not just about Winston Churchill, but there's a lot about him in there. Um, and again, it's about how he was in favor of Britain's closest ally doing whatever they had to do to make sure Hitler didn't take over the French fleet. And as far as even going as far as shelling the, that fleet and um, killing French sailors. And it was you know, very controversial for a time. It's kind of lost in history. I like the idea that not a lot of people seem to know about that story. Um, so hopefully, you know, what I write will be interesting and a surprise to people. One of the interesting, well, so, so, so go ahead. Your, so is your first, you have another book prior to this one. Is that one out? Well, the, everybody knows a salesman can't write a book. That one's out. So that book was, Is that your it was, book? wasn't as research intensive. So that was um, easier to complete. The Churchill book is, is, is not yet done. Oh, okay. 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 So, you, so you only have one book published, right? I only have one book. Yes. As I started this book, I started the books by writing during the course of writing my second book, I decided to start writing my first. So my first book is the, the salesman book. The second book is about the war. Okay, so what what is the book? Everyone, you know, uh, knows a salesman can't write a book. What's that book about? What's the story? It's 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 a mutt of a book. Um, it's about sixty percent about Winston Churchill and his contemporaries. It's about forty percent about how a software salesman salesman taught himself to research and write a book about. A fascinating man in an important part of history. It's not a how-to book. It's more of a here's why you should do it book. And my hope is to inspire people. And I've become kind of a, a book whisperer to a few people who said, they said, you know, I 
I've always had an idea to write a book. I've always wanted to write a book, um, but I, I never had the motivation to start. And it's kind of like, okay, Whiteside, if you can do it, anybody could do it. But um, <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to inspire people. Honestly, I, I wish a book like this existed before I started because just to know how you get access to archives. Um, there's a chapter in there about how I use some of my business experience to, to organize 12,000 pages of research and all kinds of dates and details into some form of a coherent story. So it's definitely for people who are interested in history and they'll pick up a little bit about what's involved in, in writing that story. But it's also very much for people who have a, a, um, you know, a, a regular job, a normal job, but are intrigued by the idea of writing a book. And hopefully this will let inspire people to know that, that they can do it. It can be done. Well, okay. So that, that's great. And, and um, so I understand about the book and mm -hmm. I see you have folks, every, he has a website, perfectly true stories, isn't it? True story. Perfectly true story. Singular.com, perfectly true story.com. Yes. And, and how did you come up with that name, just out of curiosity? Because because, <laughs> of, because you're telling so much truth about Winston Churchill or what? Uh, no, I wish I was that Clever. thoughtful. But it, it, was, it was actually, I have a, a part of a chapter about that in my book. Everybody knows a salesman can't write a book. So um, I, I mentioned that my working title was perfectly adequate. So it just seemed very logical that I was going to register perfectlyadequate.com. That was going to be my website. So I've set up other websites before and you go to register.com or another company, you type in the name of your desired website and perfectlyadequate.com was already taken. So that was a letdown. Then I fretted for a little bit, but then I, I went to look at the site and it wasn't active. So whoever owned that name was not using it. So I talked to my brother-in-law's brother, who is a web developer, and he told me about companies that will, will bid on websites for you. And based on your intended name, they'll even, even give you a suggested bidding price. And I think they said for a name like perfectly adequate, which, which are not common words, it's not trademark, bid somewhere between $300 and $700. So I think I offered a bid of about $500, expecting a counter bid, and then we'd get a deal. Seven days later, I get the counter bid. They wanted $10,000 for the name perfectlyadequate.com. So I didn't see any hope of finding common ground. So the company suggests, the, the web hosting company suggested other names, somewhere.org and nonsense and i wanted a .com name some the other names didn't make sense so um since i was i'm writing nonfiction, perfectly true story was the next thing that came to mind so and i, I and i have to say i visited your website and it, it's 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 pretty nice thank you thank you i spent a lot of it, it it's you know it shows the value of, of sticking at this for time, because it has a lot of examples of my writing. I have a, a monthly newsletter and uh, I post back issues of that. And you know, when I started the website, I, I had some pictures and that was it. Now I have more than two years of newsletter articles about a variety of different topics. So there's there's a real story there. So thank you for that. I appreciate you. And do you have a lot of followers of your, of your site? A lot of contact? 
It, um, I have a, a monthly newsletter. So there are about 1300 subscribers to the newsletter. Oh, I'm very happy to get you know, as many additional subscribers as possible. I've noticed when I talk about anything um, in the newsletter, that gets a lot more attention than putting anything on social media because that, that's a direct contact. And right, you know, people right. have been very gracious in following me. It's a great way to, was, was a great way to contact people directly to let them know about this, you know, the Everybody Knows book that I kind of snuck out into the market. So that's worked out well. So if anyone is listening who is interested in you know, building a writing career, or any kind of public presence career with music or design or painting or, or especially writing, start planning way ahead. You, know, you want to build your mailing list well before you have your book ready or your CD ready, whatever you're working on, because that takes a lot of time. So what, what are your future intentions here? Uh, number one is finish the darn book. Um, that's number one A for my wife, for me to finish that book. I've been working at it so long. It's... Um, and again, we're talking about the book about uh, Churchill and the incident in the war. Right. It's it's done in that I've written eighty chapters. I have eight. You know, I, I tend to write short chapters and short sections in the book to make it as readable as possible. I tell the story from beginning to end. Um, some of what I've done, I'm happy with. I really like. Some of it is like a big piece of drywall with holes in it and spackling, and it needs just a lot of smoothing. So that's where I spend most of my, my time right now. Just uh, an okay writer. I'm a much better rewriter, and, and that's what I enjoy more anyway. So that's where I'm spending my time. And every once in a while, um, Richard Watt had the same thing. His writing would reveal holes in his research. And I said, well, I don't really know exactly who is in this meeting or where this letter came from. So then you know, dive back into the research. So um, it's, um, you know, make progress every day. And for the last two years, I've gotten away with saying it will be done by the end of the year without really knowing for sure. I'm, I'm pretty confident now that it will actually be done by the end of this year. So are you self-published or, or are you having a company do this for you? Uh, my first book, I self-published. I hope to, that's, this all, that's been a big part of this education too. I hope, I had hoped to find a traditional publisher. And to do that, um, you first have to get an agent for the most part. Not everybody needs that. So I, I think I solicited or sent queries to about 50 different agents. And, and I really like my book. Everybody knows a salesman can't write a book, but I mentioned earlier, it's, it's a mutt. Like there's, there's no logical section in a bookstore where you would put that. It's part memoir, it's part instructional book, instructional book is partly about the war. So there were, and some agents told me there's no natural hook for that. So I had to self-publish that. Um, I did use perfectly adequate. My self-publishing company is perfectly adequate press for that book. Um, if I have to self-publish my other book, I'm okay with that, but I think it will have a lot more appeal. I know I've become a better writer. Um, just, um, through going through this process. And I've also, you know, shown that I can get a book to market. I can publicize it. There are people interested in the book and publishing is a business. Um, I mentioned this in the book that, you know, publishers are at least as interested in your ability to sell a book um, as they are about your writing ability. So in a way, 
my first book is a bit of a trailer for my second book, getting the word out there and proving that I can do this. So I, I do hope to find a, a traditional publisher, but um, if I have to publish it, I, I won't lose any sleep over that. So, so how many copies of, of your book did you sell? Just out of being a self-publisher. Um, because that, that's a tough road to follow. That's a tough road to follow. It is. It is. Um, I, what I, you know, if you don't want to tell me, you don't have to tell me. But I, I only ask that question because for listeners, yeah. you know, hey, you know, here's a guy that self-publishes book. And you yep. know what? It does work. Okay. But it takes work to get it to work. It does. And uh, I'm, 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 people can't see this. I'm, I'm smiling because um, I, I had the good fortune of being on um, a show on C-SPAN on book TV. And the interviewer asked that question. And I learned a snarky response to that question. And I'm thinking, well, I'm, I'm, on, I'm on TV. I'm not going to blow this with my snarky response. And um, no disrespect to you, but you're, you're such a nice guy. I'm enjoying this so much. So, and, and I don't really mean this, but I read Someone said well, when somebody mean, asked you, you that. You mean I'm a nice guy? No. You are a nice guy. Yeah, yeah. But so you're supposed to say, well, well, how much money did you make last year? No, I'm not. No, I'm not. I'm, no, I, I sold about 325 copies of my book so far. Okay. So in closing, I mean, you, you've done a tough road with your life. And I mean, and you know what? Your passion is unbelievable. You can, I can feel it, not only here in our conversation. Okay. So in closing, what advice would you give to our listeners? I mean, I've been extraordinarily blessed in a lot of ways. I, um, I had a, I'm the oldest of six kids, had a you know, healthy upbringing, a very supportive family, the family I was born into, the family I have now. I have an inordinately patient wife who puts up with me, spending way too much time in my office working on the book, um, two kids who encourage me. Um, but the, the biggest thing is, is, if, if you're serious about something like this, you want it to be successful, it requires a lot of work. And I used to use the analogy of, you know, you have to work on this when the other kids are out playing. Um, people are having fun, they're going to bars or they're, you know, doing things that, you know, other than writing, you really have to apply a lot of time to it and be diligent and have high standards for yourself and try to keep at it every day. I'm a very um, goal-oriented person, so I would keep track of number of pages written each day or number of words, and I kept a graph for that. And I used that to measure progress, but also I didn't want there to be many holes in the graph to show that I was not making progress. So that helped keep me on track and keep me motivated. So I, I know that doesn't work for everybody, but that definitely that, worked for me. That is good advice, though. Well, Bill, I really want to thank you for taking the time out of your day and giving us a talking to us. Oh, thank you, Jim. I, it was great talking to you. I really enjoyed this. Thank you for having me on. Well, I hope you enjoyed our podcast with Bill. He learned the value of sticking to his passion. So follow your passion. But remember, as Bill stated, Passion requires a lot of work. People learn so much from their own experiences and those of others. So if you have some experience that you would like to share, just contact me at youarejustanumber.com. Until next time, 
Have a great day.